0: hi guys welcome to the revive stronger podcast i'm your host as always steve hall and i am joined today by eric helms so eric if not many of you have been aware has just been competing uh, this season and that is something that i really want to dig into with eric today because i think it's really interesting to hear someone who has competed many times before and it's also taken many people to stage but it's been quite a while since your last competitive outing uh hasn't it, eric
1: yeah eight, eight years away from the stage so i did uh 07 season 09 season 2011 but before we get into that thank you for having me sir it's it's glad to be back on revive stronger
0: and uh just appreciate the opportunity to talk about myself as always <laughs> yeah this is going to be all about eric so this is going to be a nice like self, all about yourself, Eric, and no always our pleasure mm-hmm. to have you on. And um, I'm glad we could make this happen and let people know kind of your recent competitive outing in, was it in, where was it again? In Hawaii? No. It F- was in Hawaii. Yeah. I'm
1: actually rocking the shirt right now. Nice. The, the Polynesian uh, Muscle Mayhem. It is a uh, INBF show. I think it's been around for a couple of years now. Uh, it's, it's a smaller show just because of the, the location. I think it's difficult to get, um, a lot of competitors out to Hawaii but they do they do a really fantastic job of putting on the show and I can just encourage anyone, it's very well ran, the lighting is is, is well done, the judging is very fair um, you know, it's, it's, it's ran like a show that is attended by three times as many people and I think it'd be really cool if it had three times as many attended people, so it's also early in the season, so April, so it's, you know, kind of one of those shows where maybe yeah. people aren't in condition yet, but um, if you are competing in an early show, I can highly recommend it from personal experience. Um, but yeah, anyway, so, um, also good, ex- good excuse for a, a vacation after your show. Oh, yeah. if, you, if you really want to ruin your transition to the off season. So, um, <laughs> lots of good food in Hawaii. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my first show, April 6th, uh, INBF, uh, Muscle hand.
0: And to give the listeners like an understanding of why there was such a big gap between since your last competitive season? Why why was that? Uh, I think that would be quite valuable for people to hear. For sure. So my 2011 season, I did during my first
1: master's. I was also teaching uh, 30 hours a week. I had a full roster with 3DMJ. And I was also working on my proposal for my second master's, which I did in AUT. And we were getting our entire life ready to move. Because we flew out um, end of August 2012 to move to New Zealand to start my second master's and PhD. And I've said before on other podcasts that um, people typically don't have an issue with time management. It's energy management. Like you always have a few more hours in the day. This was a period in my life where that actually was not the case. Where I legitimately on a day-to-day basis when I wasn't studying, doing cardio, training, training, uh oh I was also doing some personal training still I still had about three three or four clients that I was doing in person so in person personal training teaching classes building classes grading or doing admin um writing my proposal um or something or yeah coaching my 3DMJ athletes I had about 3 hours per day that weren't allocated so that was you know uh eating <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and sitting down to watch Netflix with my wife for, you know, a couple hours. I, I was fortunate, at least in the earlier part of the year, that she was um, dieting for some powerlifting meets and also tried her hand at a figure show. So through May, we got to do our cardio together and train together and all that. So that allowed us some kind of semblance of, of connection. But, man, from uh, like June through August, for those three months – uh, it, it was, I looked at, it it's like, this isn't the way to live life, you know? Um, and I, I did a good job. Like I was able to get a, like a 4.0 in my master's and I won the, the, the second show I did the second of my two shows. Um, and that was where I got, you know, like PMBA pro qualified in, in that organization. So it objectively went well, but it was, but I think both suffered in some way. Everything suffered a little bit when you're that busy. And it made me, I pledged to myself that once I went to New Zealand and started my, 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 my research-based uh, part of my graduate studies, that I would not get back on stage, uh, that I would have to resign myself to powerlifting and eventually weightlifting, which was cool too, um, sort of. I don't know if it counts. I mean, I completed a meet, but it's not good. Um, I resigned myself to going, right, you, you can do strength sport that requires like you know you doing a max test on a day but no dieting until you're done with your phd which didn't come until uh well i graduated in december 2017 so uh sometime we're near the nearing the end of my phd data collection in 2016 when i kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel that's when i started planning and uh, engaging in the initial steps which led me to here
0: that's, it, it's fascinating to me. Well, not fascinating, but it's shocking to me when you said 2012 is when you moved to New Zealand. Cause I was like, it doesn't feel like you've moved that long ago. I can remember when you made the move and it didn't it really doesn't feel that long ago. So time has flown. It's crazy. It is crazy, man. I, um, I was reflecting
1: today. I was trying to figure out how many powerlifting meets I'd done. And I was going back and trying to find the old American Powering Association like records and from California in like 2007. And uh, yeah, websites are, are a lot better <laughs> these days.
0: <laughs> and out of so, interest, Eric, how, how's it been? Because it's been such a long time since you competed before. Like, Is there anything that you immediately felt kind of changed in competing and also your approach?
1: You know, the funny thing is it has been a lot better this time, I think, because of the time away from stage. Um, And I'll explain why. Um, When I moved to New Zealand, I also said, you know what, I don't need to be tracking my macros every day. Yeah, you know, the way I have been and and weighing when I'm at home and estimating when I'm out and having numbers that I'm targeting to hit. Um, And I started to realize that by having my primary and principal rule, of I'm going to hit these three numbers. I was actually preventing myself from developing a lot of consistent habit-based, automatic um, strategies. And anyone who wants to read more about that can check out the 3DMJ blog, the default diet, and then the the, the one I wrote after that. I, I think the it's a question-based title uh, is tracking inhibiting your your nutritional growth. And that's obviously – that that question was – the answer was yes for me um, and that's because I was like kind of freestyle IIFYM approaching it for a long time. Um, I was fortunate in 2011 that I was just so damn busy uh, that I ended up having a very, very consistent eating schedule mm-hmm. and very being very structured and buying the same foods and eating them and, and having the f- far less decisions to make or time to focus on food. Um, cause I think that inadvertently, unintentionally built some of the structure that I had, um, at the time. So when I moved to New Zealand and, uh, I stopped tracking macros and I learned that I can pretty effortlessly maintain, gain or lose weight at least, you know, until I get like really lean and I get hungry. Um, and by just kind of modifying some basic structural approaches without tracking, and that just by looking at food, I can almost always tell the portion size unless it's some kind of weird mixed meal that I'm not used to or a food I'm not familiar with. I realized how much I was getting in my own way. Um, and I found that I was able to, uh, when I did finally do like a, a quote unquote bulk, if you will, I moved from around 90, 90 to 93 kilos up to around 98 to 100 kilos over about a year and a half from late 2016 to, uh, uh, to early 2018. Um and that was one of the leaner bulks I'd done, I think because I was better matching up my energy surplus on a day-to-day basis with my actual expenditure because I was very aware of my hunger and satiety and, and lethargy and fullness, all all the little things that I was supplanting with tracking. Um, and I'm not anti-tracking, it's just that you don't want tracking to replace your, your body awareness or your nutritional awareness, you want it to supplement it. And I think, in many ways, I was using it as a replacement. Like, I don't have to worry about satiety or hunger. I'm a slave to the numbers, you know. My body's a machine. I'm here to fuel it. And instead of realizing that I had the super complex, uh, you know, biological help here, the whole senses that we have and, and my entire, you know, physiology was geared towards being aware of what its energy needs were. And I was uh, eschewing that, if you will. So, anyway, I think one of the things that made this a lot easier prep was that I had literally eight years of habit-based development, not tracking, being more aware of my hunger, paying attention to correlations between performance and eating, um, and the modifications I made to my nutrition plan uh, were largely based on swapping out, you know, full or low-fat items for non-fat, uh, replacing uh, starchy carbohydrates with vegetables, um, and you know, reducing the oils, things like that. Um, you know, swapping out higher calorie fruits for lower calorie fruits and uh, and and focusing on you know protein-based meals like I was, but just with with leaner protein sources. Um, sprinkle in a very small amount of cardio and you know kind of have like a high day, low day structure. Um, and I didn't even need to track for the first uh, nine weeks of uh, of my official diet start. I uh, know I didn't start actually whipping out the scale and, uh, and fit genie until I was six weeks out. Um, and, 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 and arguably decent stage condition already. So it was, um, I think that, that made it a lot easier, mm-hmm. a lot less decisions to make for sure.
0: That's really interesting. And in line with that, were you wearing, monitoring your body weight or was that something you weren't doing Absolutely. So yeah, that's a great example of being aware of
1: your body, but using biofeedback to make decisions. So I was weighing in daily, um, you know, and, uh, I, I also, another thing is that with all those habits formed, it allowed me to start leaner at the beginning of prep leaner than I ever have for, a, mm-hmm. for a prep. Um, and basically finding that sweet spot where I'm not I don't have diet fatigue, but I'm also as lean as I can be without diet fatigue, or at least where I think I was. So I started my prep right around like 89 and a half kilos, and that was me eating without any intention to 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 maintain or I wasn't I wasn't restricted. Let's put it that way. Um, I had done a mini cut in April, and then another one in September October uh to get down to uh around 88 i think i even hit 87 i was traveling and just under eating and then i was hungry when i got back so i ate habitually and got up to around 88 89 and then i was holding there until december 18th when i started and if you look at the ig pics i put up i'd say i was probably like a legit maybe 11 12 Mm percent body fat to start my prep um somewhere in there which is was a really great starting point for me um and um I i was actually shocked at just like man, I, I look like I've been dieting, and I haven't been. you know that that's pretty cool because when I started my prep, um, the last few times, I was five to ten pounds heavier each time. and then another increment, like I started, I think my first prep way back in the day at like two hundred and fifteen pounds, which is like um, I don't know, what is that ninety eight, ninety seven, something wow. like that. So, yeah, anyway, but like a full full eight to nine kilos heavier, which is why I was able to get on stage after a fifteen week diet. When previously, in 2011, I got on stage after a 32-week diet, so, um, which was nice, and I took a diet break. Uh, in a week, I think week, week six or seven of, of, of dieting, I took a diet break, uh, and I had a two-day or three-day refeed uh, every week, um, nice. except for a digging phase right in the end uh, where we would kind of do it more auto-regulated, where I'd pop in two or three days once I hit a new low or once we saw a visual change. But so for the most part, you know, uh, on average, only five out of every seven days was a dieting day and then one out of the uh, the 15 weeks that I was dieting was completely uh, off. So, on average, I was only dieting like a thir- two-thirds of the time that I was in prep for 15 weeks, which I think is pretty cool. Um, so, I think all of those factors went into
0: it. Um, And I might've forgotten what your original question was because I tangented myself. It was, no, you did, you answered it because it was a case of what was different this time dieting versus last time. And being at the lower end of uh, kind of, I guess it's lower lower end of your settling point is kind of a a way you could describe the position you got yourself down to then rid of any kind of diet fatigue. And I guess the anxiety behind the numbers and the poor habits, uh, an element of diet fatigue, I guess you could call it. So you just put yourself in a really- good strong position to start a contest prep this time around
1: yeah oh you asked me if i was weighing myself so yes yeah oh, the yeah. um that that and that that's an important point is um i think when i say i wasn't tracking a lot of people would be like well so you didn't control calorie how, how do you know what you were eating yeah. or how do you know if you were progressing And I think it's really important to know that I can't not know what my calorie intake is, especially based on food that I've been eating (laughs) like for eight years. Um, Not that I have no variation, but it's like I have some some pretty solid habits in place. Um, So I'm aware of my calorie intake, but I would let my calories be higher or lower based on how hungry or satiated I was. You know, I'm not going to like not eat enough protein or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But if... If, if I've been roughly eating 1,800 calories but it's an off day, I've been sedentary the whole time, I'm not hungry, I don't even feel like I need an, an additional meal, I might just have – I, I, there, were, there were nights where I just drank some pasteurized egg whites and went to bed and I was like, all right, let me hit a gram per pound of protein and I'm done uh, and that put me at like 1,500 calories even though my target was 1,800 because why not, you know? Um, and uh, I could just tell that I, I I wasn't burning as many that day. I didn't feel lethargic despite being on lower calories. I wasn't hungry. Sleep wasn't disturbed. I didn't look flat. Uh, performance the next day was fine, that kind of thing. Uh, and more importantly, not more importantly, but and equally as importantly, getting on the scale every day, you can kind of get a sense of, of what's going on, especially if your nutrition habits are consistent. So I was essentially using both quantitative and qualitative biofeedback in addition to the inability to not know <laughs> yeah. how many how many calories I, I was eating, so I, I was always aware. Um, and then how far I would modify the the the, uh, the calories would be based on all the all, all those qualities. And I could say on average I was eating probably twenty three to twenty five hundred calories um, on my refeeds at the start, and I was dieting on around eighteen hundred on my low days. Uh, and that worked pretty damn well, uh, for, I want to say I didn't hit a stall for the first six, four, four to five or six weeks. And then I slotted in uh, a couple cardio sessions per week that I say were cardio sessions, but then, you know, if, if I'd actually done two cardio sessions a week for those last 10 weeks, I would have said I'd done 20 cardio sessions, but only ended end up doing nine. So that's very few. Uh, And that's largely because I I wasn't doing like hard cardio. I was just attempting to uh, offset any reductions in energy expenditure, right? So if a scheduled cardio day came around, but I had a meeting in the city that I walked to, and then I Mm -hmm. walked back, and then I had to go grocery shopping, I'm like, well, I'm not going to do cardio now. I basically did it, and that ended up happening more often than not. Or I would just intentionally do things like you know take the stairs, walk to the grocery store. Uh, you know, carry the groceries back from the grocery store, which is actually a decent walk. And I would sneak in my cardio in that way. So formal cardio sessions only nine, but I I did start doing cardio at that point. That was the second adjustment. Um, then I took the diet break, came back, got some more life out of that same setup. And then in the last six weeks of my diet, I had to make changes every like every week or every other week until I got down pretty low. But um, but yeah, it, it was it was very smooth sailing throughout um, and I also was getting skinfold, uh, assessments done okay. every, every couple of weeks, which I find, uh, from an ISAC anthropometrist who's, you know, a PhD student yeah. at AUT. So it's not like, uh, I don't like most body fat assessments. Yeah. And people ask me, oh, you got skin folds. What was your body fat? I'm like, I'm not going to use skin folds to yeah. determine body fat. That's a terrible idea. But guess what? a skin fold is a very accurate measurement of. A skin fold. So, uh, it, it, and that's what we care about as bodybuilders is mm-hmm. how much distance is there between our eyes and the muscle. Um, so, it was cool to see my skin folds tracked down. And I'm actually going to start up doing that again um,
0: this Sunday. Nice. A lot of things you were talking about there, Eric, is just making me think if you were my client, I feel like you might be a nightmare. <laughs> just in the fact of a lot of things you were talking about is needed. Like, you have to be very sure that you're advanced in many of these areas of knowledge and application and being able to like have I was just thinking if a client was like chucking these things at me was like oh I didn't do my cardio today because I, I went for this walk and I'm mm-hmm. like hang on this is really hard to control uh so do you want to touch a bit on like the fact that you've got all this experience and potentially I don't know in your past seasons you wouldn't have been able to do such modifications on the fly as such yeah, I think this is um this is
1: something you have to learn as a coach too <laughs> is that the way you coach someone who is a, a highly advanced bodybuilder and I don't mean advanced like oh they're going to place really high cuz yeah. there's some people who are 23 who are going to win um, but someone who's highly experienced and has been intentional and and aware and has improved upon their own process during that time um, is very different than the way you you coach a first-time competitor or even someone who's in, say, their second or third season. Um, like you, my standard based on the fact that 90% of the – I would say – I did math one time. I think roughly 300 people I've helped get on stage. Um, so 90% of them. So we're talking 200 plus of those people were early stage uh, intermediates, novices or late stage intermediates is what I would qualify them as going into their second or third season most of the time with a lot of first timers. And in those cases, I'm giving a plus or minus five to 10 gram target on macros. Um, I'm giving them a specific resistance training program, they're going to track sets, reps and loads. Um, and given specific high days, specific low days, uh, X number of calories, I want them to burn, uh, per week. Um, and then daily weigh-ins and they have a, a specific day of the week that they report in on. And I ask them to do a, a video ideally if they can voice message, if they can't or written email, if none of those work and uh, ideally video their physique going through the mandatory poses and, uh, or, or pictures if they can't do that. I give them one to two things on their posing to fix each week because they can't take on too many things learning on board. I look at their training to see if it's progressing. I ask for certain lifts to be seen that are high risk, ask if their performance is going. I get RPE. Like I have, I know exactly what I want, which variables I want Mm -hmm. and what I do with them. Um, And that's the way it, it goes for novices and intermediates. And then that changes on an individual basis over time. Uh, like for example, um, they might have certain things like, Hey, you know, during exam week, this really, really messes me up and you go, Hey, all right, we're not going to weigh in during exam week. And I want that to be our deloads. Um, or someone else might have a, a really odd rotating work schedule, uh, that, that kind of messes up their, their weigh-ins or their food or whatever. And we go, right, we're going to have, um, auto-regulated refeed days. So long as you get two in per week, I'm happy, but what day of the week, I don't care. Just so long as it's out of every seven days, five are dieting days. So you end up creating these kind of ad hoc modifications mm-hmm. to that basic structure of coaching. Um, but you have to be more flexible than that with an advanced, uh, athlete. And in many times the way to approach it, is you let them be the gatekeeper. Unless they come to you and they go, hey, look, I want your structure. Treat me like any other client. And then you just have to make sure that you don't get in their way, um, that you include them, even though you start with that structure. And that does happen. Sometimes I get uh, the high-level athlete who goes, look, I haven't been as successful as I want. I don't trust my approach, so let right. me do the 3DM, 3DMJ d and 3 way. And we start there and then work work, work their individuality into it. But um to give you an example of what it might look like for a high-level athlete, uh, with burdo, I, I brought him on to, to be like officially doing coaching and him having kind of the, the the final say unless you know we totally disagreed, which hasn't really ever happened, um, right around the six weeks out mark. Um, and he knew what I was doing beforehand, he endorsed it, he liked it, uh, he thought it was working really well. Obviously, I would have reached out if it hadn't been. Um, and he wanted to see, you know, videos of me in front natural lighting after all of my low days, uh, along with basically a report of how things are going, performance, et cetera. Um, and one of the first things he did was he told me after one of my series of two refeeds, you don't look like you had refeeds. You still look flat to me. I want you to go out and eat more tonight. And then, uh, the next week he was like, actually, I want you to have three refeed days in a row. Uh, And you know, I realized that I was very, very, very focused on am I getting leaner right. and uh, whatever, I'll do the refeeds and I won't pay attention to it. So, I was essentially uh, over-dieting a little bit and Berto caught that earlier than I would have. I think it would have taken me uh, to like one day look up and go like, I hey, you look small as shit, you know, like too late kind of thing or, or to see performance drop. So, things like that, you know, e- even though I'm experienced, I am going to get tunnel vision at some yeah. point. Um, as I did and, uh, to have that kind of input, it, it's, it's a very different setup. So your, your structure of coaching needs to change based on the level of the athlete. Um, a powerlifting example is me working with Bryce right now, mm-hmm. you know, he, uh, he, he reports in regularly either, either once or every other week, uh, depending on kind of where he's at and where he's at mentally too. Um, and then I write him a block of training and I go, let me know what you think. And he gives me like a block review and a, uh, some block alterations at the beginning of it. And then he, on any given day, I I can get a message from Bryce and he'll say, Hey, here are some thoughts on, on what did or didn't happen. I want to make some changes. And that could be me talking him down from a ledge and saying, Hey, you're, you're kind of, I think you're focused too much on the day here. Or that could be we completely alter the taper and we have to start it multiple days early. Um, So um, I think you you do an advanced lifter a disservice if they've been paying attention and if they're actually a coachable athlete, not just someone who's really stubborn and locked in their way, uh, if you don't incorporate uh, all those things. Um, And that doesn't actually make it harder on the coach. That's a a more difficult skill set in my opinion. Like when I first worked with some advanced lifters, Um, I think I probably held them back just because I'm like, well, look, I need to, I need to see, like, I want to make a change. And I don't know if the change worked, if I don't know that you had all your macros within five grams, you know? Um, but if, if, if I was coaching me, you know, back when I was like that and I, and I, I looked up and I said, Hey, Eric, listen, buddy, uh, we lost the right amount of weight this week. I look better. I recognize that I am 100 calories over on some days and 100 calories under on other days and that I skipped cardio this week. But the whole reason we're managing those variables is to get the progress that we already got and my performance is holding up. I look good. I'm improving in every way possible. So so maybe just uh, take the stick out of your ass, you know, and we can, we can set up a different system here. But that's hard to do, you know. Um, I think... I think all of those systems we put in place, not only do they give us utility as coaches, they also give us confidence and to know that, you know, in the, in this, in this world where we really don't actually get to see the person physically, we don't see 95% of what's going on in their life. We can at least, you know, plant our anchor of confidence in this Excel spreadsheet and these videos we get every seven days. Um, and I think. That is a bit of a kind of a false sense of confidence. And it's good to shake that up every once in a while and understand that it is a, you know, a push and pull with, with, a, with a true human out there who who is going to be able to, to intuit, see and engage with much more than you ever possibly can. And while it's great for an early stage novice who has no experience and doesn't know what it's going to be like for the coming weeks to be able to basically borrow your confidence in your system, uh, the true way to unlock the best performance in an athlete is to get them more in tune with their own uh, self-awareness. Mm-hmm. But that's it's hard to facilitate in online coaching relationships, but you have to be open to it when you work with an advanced lifter.
0: Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate those comments. And I think that's the beauty of having the video feedback or at least the voice mm-hmm. notes and things like this as a coach. Whereas, I don't know, there's a lot of online coaches that just heavily rely on email and I'm not sure that's the easiest platform to communicate effectively in that way. So I really appreciate you guys do that. And I've certainly found value in our own online coaching systems where we are using that because a lot of the people I coach, they're coaches themselves. They know, like you said, people know their bodies almost better than, you know, them when they're at that level. So you have to take their input, especially if you haven't coached them for that long, you don't know them that well. So yeah, I think that was a a really valuable discussion, Eric. Thanks,
1: man. Yeah. I, um. Email, it's it's funny. I'm not This is totally off topic, but email, I think, is very alluring because you can see it all. You can take your time. You can write it down. Uh, it's unfiltered. Uh, you can see the tree. There's some logistical benefits. You can see everything that was said. Um, but, man, like there's a reason why the nastiest political debates yeah. and, and straw man arguments happen uh, in text. It's because people – are removed from treating each other like people. Like you don't see, uh, you don't see someone's face. You don't see connotation uh, or hand gestures. You don't hear tone of voice. Um, and it, it just it just removes so many critical elements of, of communication. And and man, when you see someone who's saying they're good to go. And their eyes are half shut, and they're 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 yeah. just sucked they're sucked up, and 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 you have to put them on two times speed just to 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 hear everything they're saying in some kind of reasonable cadence. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, your neat is down, bro. You know, so I think all you lose all those things when you don't get some of that more natural
0: communication. One hundred percent. And actually, on that topic of neat, did you track steps or did you do anything with your neat to monitor that? No, I haven't done that. Um,
1: I think. I've considered it and I might, but I also don't want my life to become calorie burning so much. Um, I've done it more subjectively, just thinking about like, what do I, what am I normally like? How often am I moving around and what am I like today? And then am I getting leaner? Is my weight stalling? Because I think that's, that's, well, even if it is like an actual metabolic uh, rate going down, uh, I can't really change that. You know, I can do my refeeds and hope it helps. But Um, the only thing I can do is offset it. So it was more subjective, uh, like I would decide to take a walk and think, uh, it's a good opportunity to catch up on continuing education, podcasts, um, stuff like that. And, uh, so I, I I did that more subjectively.
0: Yeah. I think it's, uh, I'm really glad, I think it was James Krieger that really brought it to the forefront for me because Mm -hmm. I know in my first prep, it was something that I was completely ignorant to to the point of which I would gladly sit down and not worry about things. And I had to do horrible amounts of cardio to make up for the fact. So I think just the yeah. fact, obviously, you're more than aware of it. But even more people are now aware of it. I don't think necessarily you need to get down to having the step tracker on there unless it's like an accountability tool. Uh, whereas, you know, you need to give yourself a, a talking to if you're being lazy, you kind of know it
1: yeah you know it's an interesting thing i'm uh you had uh Andrew Chapel on not too long ago yeah um and uh one thing we've seen in some of the uh the data he's collected in the u k on on bodybuilders is that pretty much everyone does cardio yeah and I wonder if we put a step tracker on everyone and everyone just tried to do activity to prevent their steps from going down so low if you'd see huge amounts of drop off people doing cardio you know because the, I think the reason people find like, oh, I, I drop my calories low, but man, I'm still, I'm still not losing fast enough. I got to do cardio. It's that, it's because of that. You know, our activity levels drop so much. We become so much more sedentary when we're not forced to be moving that we see cardio as effective. And I think we ascribe, as it's very common when we don't know why something, we, we, uh, we ascribe explanations that may or may not be true physiologically. For something, uh, once we uh, observe something consistently. Because I, I will say, like, consistently, if you see uh, bodybuilders who struggle to get lean and they didn't do cardio and they start doing cardio, they get leaner, you know? Because yeah. uh, that was a big thing in the early 2000s, the 90s. People were all like, oh, I don't do cardio. And then a lot of the times people started doing cardio and they were able to get to strided glutes. Um, I think the, uh, that's really primarily, it's nothing magic about uh you know like metabolism or fuel utilization or or tapping into fat burning et cetera, or you know enhancing mitochondria's ability to use fat for fuel blah 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 mm-hmm. um no i don't think it's anything like that i think it's that it's offsetting your reductions in need and if you take care of that without cardio then maybe you won't need cardio because essentially you've done cardio you know
0: <laughs> no yeah I, so. I definitely think it's the not that we talk too much about that podcast but there's some really interesting questions that you end up having once you hear about what the elite are doing and kind of is it because of this or because of that and that step element is really interesting to see if they would actually just end up not requiring the cardio if they were more aware of NEAT and things like that.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely.
0: And then we talked about refeeds. I don't know if I misheard the number of calories you brought up to but did what are your refeeds kind of looking like? Are they brought up to maintenance intake through carbohydrates or how are you planning those yeah it's carbohydrate dominant um
1: and it is right around where maintenance probably is Um, so for me at the moment i'm running three days at 2700 in a row um and yeah they are i mean the fats do come up a little bit because i'm not anal retentive about just trying to drive carbohydrates up um and I do actually think there's probably some benefits to having a more holistic increase in uh in total calories uh from multiple forms uh, probably not as much protein but everything else fats and carbs I don't think it should be I, th- I do think it should be dominant in carbohydrate based on what we know mm-hmm. uh, but I d- I'm not worried about trying to keep fat intake really really low in fact I wonder like you know the your high days are also an opportunity to to maybe shore up some micronutrient deficiencies right. that have been around. Um, you know, and, and for me, um, because I am a desk jockey and I just don't have that high of an energy expenditure, like my low lowest low days got down to around 1400 skirting right around there, maybe even slightly under, which isn't crazy. If you think about it, like four days at 1400, three days at 2700, I'm still clocking an average of about, uh, 10 Kcals per pound or 22 Kcals per kg. But those are those low days basically consist of protein and vegetables with like one piece of one or two pieces of low calorie fruit and like fish oil you know so i'm i've got my basics covered um but i think it's really difficult for someone who's you know 81 82 kilos consuming 1400 calories even of micronutrient dense foods if it's a high protein diet to not be running into micronutrient deficiencies so i see those you know, three 2,700 calorie days is an opportunity to rich, to eat, you know, a rich variety of whole foods, including, um, some, some foods that have, have fat in them and from different sources. Um, so I, I, can't like, I can't put, put like a research study behind that statement, but I can say, I think it's probably overly reductionist to be like, yeah, you need to keep your fat below 50 grams and drive your carbs up to 500. Uh, man, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe like 65 grams of fat and in the 400 to be a little better like I, if i had to guess just to make sure that you can actually you know eat an egg or something like that mm-hmm. you know stuff like that um so anyway yeah that that that's how the setup's been uh the high days weren't as high nor were they as frequent in the beginning i was doing you know 5 days at 1800 and then 2 days at like 23 to 2500 right. um and then as i was getting more depleted to make progress um and uh and And needing to suffer a little more to to get the total deficit, uh, I was needing to offset that more. Uh, And it did seem to make a difference. And I noticed I wasn't um, spilling over as much, even though I was adding another high day. um, So that, I don't know if that's changes in nutrient partitioning or just being able to see it better because I'm I'm lower in body fat. Uh, The consequences of the spillover are less obvious. But it was interesting. It did seem to match up with when that was probably a good time to do it.
0: And actually, because you talked about fat, in terms of minima, is I think the muscle and strength pyramid to say 0.3 grams per pound is kind of like the general rule of thumb. Is that right? And then is that kind of what you take through a contest prep? Or if you do go under that, how long do you allow, like if you had a client or even yourself, how long do you allow yourself to go under that amount? Yeah, that's like
1: uh, everyone – it's all of us making up a minimum because we don't have enough research on fat. So um, people have speculated all over the place and I think it just depends on whether you come from a bias of looking at fat as this nutrient you need but not as important as carbohydrates and protein because hashtag sport performance kind of thing. Or whether you come from the whole like health side of it, and you're like, hey, carbohydrates are, are are non-essential, and but we we need fruits and vegetables and fiber, but the rest are just you know places to get calories you don't need, and then it's all about protein and fat. You see kind of these two different recommendations, like don't go below one gram per kg on that kind of health side of it, or don't go below uh, like 0.5 grams per kg on on the other side of it, which is kind of. You know the low end. So I, I think in, in my books I put uh, yeah right around what, what you said like 0. 0.25 grams per pound or 0. 0.5 grams per kg is kind of the low end of or where you you typically not want to go below regardless for prep. Right. Um, but with that said, I think for short term periods uh, there's there's a low likelihood of consequence besides just being fucking hungry, yeah. um, dropping your your fat very low, and it's a useful way to cut calories. So. Um, You know, when I'm clocking those 1,400-calorie days, I'm not – like I haven't – that's another thing that's prepped that's different is I haven't had target macros. I've just been making sure I hit a gram per pound of protein and then I have a calorie target when I have targets. Um, And I, because I know my habits aren't going to change that much, it's always going to be a moderate or low-fat-ish approach um, and uh, with with ample carbs. And uh, I just don't see – I can't convince myself, at least with my specific individual – Uh, Needs where I've never seen a difference playing with it multiple times in the off-season and in prep. uh, With the difference between a day where I'm at 30 grams of fat or 70 with the same calories, even in prep, I don't notice any difference. Maybe maybe slight differences in like satiety or hunger or what I crave, but performance, no change. Sleep, no change. Uh, Libido, no change. Uh, Nothing that I can subjectively tell um and i can't justify it metabolically anyway like yeah that's just not how the way things work so um those are like the extreme ends uh, of it but for the most part i'm probably falling between 40 and 60 grams of fat a day (laughs) on a 1400 calorie day though it's more like 30 or 40 yeah Uh, but then it comes back up for the refeeds
0: cool yeah really interesting and then uh with the refeed approach actually that you've been taking i know you kind of use those as data points for peak week and things like this. Yes. You obviously peaked for Hawaii. Uh, I'd be interested. and I think the listeners would be interested to hear what your approach to that was, uh, whether or not what lessons you learned from it, and maybe you're going to take them into your future peaks.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, peak week has typically not gone that well for me. Uh, And um, there's a a notorious story for for hardcore longtime 3DMJ followers uh, where... In my – the show where I, I got – my first show I won, where I got pro-qualified in the INBA, um, it pre-judging, I, I was actually down one point and then and at the finals when they did the pose down, I won by one point. The judges changed it because I looked that much different from pre-judging the finals. I had spilled over in the morning um, because I looked and appeared to both Brad and Jeff flat and the night before, we would loaded, it. So we loaded again, and then I just had this spilly look to me. So we've kind of learned, and I, I spill in different places, so I can be f- appearing flat in my upper body and spilled in my lower body, and it's a very stark difference. Um, and we, uh, what I've, what my hypothesis now is it has less to do with whether I'm actually full of glycogen or low on glycogen in certain muscle groups, and, and more so just that when I eat a lot of food, there's this transition time where I just look, Gross, you know, or there's like this, this, this kind of filmy water retention that just has much more to do with just transporting nutrients, changes in sodium, changes in body water, and it's going to take some time for me to to like, like pee and have it stabilize. And typically, and and on a longer time period than most, so it's it's confused for being uh, flat or, or or spilled or full or what have you. I actually remember being on the phone with Lane Norton in two thousand nine after my like third failed peak. And he was like, so were you flat or were you spilled over? And I was like, honestly, I was both. And he was, and I tried to describe it to him. I was like, does that make sense? And he, and he paused for a second. He went, no, <laughs> like I, I, he, like, I could tell like, and I, I would have been the same way. He just didn't, he didn't trust me as an athlete to right. be able to know what I was seeing. Okay. You're frustrated, you're dieted, you're crazy. Uh, we don't know if you were flat or spilled. So I guess I'm still flying in the dark kind of thing. Um, But you know, over the years, I, we've come to figure out that, um, that, yeah, we we probably want to be manipulating less variables come game day. Um, so, I paid a lot of attention to how my body looked in relation to those two refeed days and how many low days it took me to look good and clean up. Right. Um, and I found that I looked good on day one of refeeds once I was lean, um, but I looked better after my whole refeed cycle was over and it had been a day or two. Uh, so thinking about that and uh, and thinking how to, how to play with it, two weeks out, what we did was instead of having three days at 2700, um, we had days where I went higher than 27 on day one, mid and then lower. So it was still three days at 2700 just distributed differently. and the last day was at I think uh, 1900. Um, and I found and, and then the, the theory was look if we kind of do this downward taper, I'll still get the same amount of glycogen mm-hmm. uh, stored, but I won't have as much of this nasty spill to, to clean up. Uh, and then we set it up so that my refeed schedule was shifted so that here in New Zealand, it's a Sunday, which is we're on the other side of the international date line in the States, it would be a Saturday. Uh, I took the, the video of me posing two weeks out uh, and I looked really good. Like that was, I looked hard, full, lean. Uh, and that was the 10 a.m., same same time I'd be getting on stage in Hawaii uh, with the time difference uh, roughly uh, after those three days with the day prior being 1,900. And I looked really good. Uh, I thought I could be a little bit fuller. So the only change we did the next week was instead of that first day being uh, a little higher than 2,700, it was substantially higher. So I went to like 3,600 calories. So I think, uh, yeah, the, the the first round basically I took 2,700 and I, I kicked up. Uh, like 400 calories on the high day and the low day, and just just unevenly spread them like that. So I want to say it was like 31. I can't remember. It's like 29. It was at 29, 24, 19. I think it's what I did. So it was on average the same, but but just downward right. sloping. And this time I just did the same thing. I took the first day up to 36. So I went like 36, and then the same numbers. And I looked bigger and fuller on stage than I did in those pictures, but I think just as tight. Um, and I even have the pictures morning of the show where I look really dry and tight uh, before I even had my first meal. All, all, I think all I'd had going into that was, uh, was, was fluids to make sure I was peeing clear. So like the metrics we had on, on game day, Berto wanted to see me piss and clear. And then I had like a 400 to 500 calorie meal, uh, two hours before stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I had sodium and water and that's it. Uh, and then it was, a it wasn't a one-day – sorry, it wasn't a one-format show. It wasn't just straight through. Right. But it was such a small show that I was on stage at uh, 1045 and then 245. So, it was a very short period. So, then I just had another quick carbohydrate-dominant 400-calorie meal once as soon as I got off stage and then did the sodium water again. Um, and I looked good the whole time, which is uh, tough for me because typically at best, I can keep myself just not totally flat. That, that the our old strategy that we figured out in 09 was just give him a couple hundred grams of carbs the day before you know prevent him from being gross flat and right. then at least he won't look worse than normal and then in 2011 we got me looking good at, at finals but not prejudging so it was eh. but this time i looked my best that i had uh on stage at prejudging and finals which is really all i could ask for yeah um and uh you know like i said there's only f- Four or five hours between the two uh, stage outings, but hopefully in in July when I do these bigger shows, we can use that same strategy and probably just add in like another meal because uh, there'll probably be another two three hours between on top of that between yeah. uh, my two stage outings. So
0: yeah, really cool, really interesting to hear that it's taken even for like the number of shows you've done, how many manipulations and trials and errors, and how you've kind of just got to a formula that's coming together now, which is kind of i guess actually i'd be interested here because obviously you've as a whole 3dmj have coached tons of people to stage in the thousands properly how is it very variable between people in terms of do some people have it like you and then other people are just like you can peak them and they're just very predictable and is there like more more people like you or more people who are more predictable is it just like a complete mix
1: yeah, I am probably <laughs> like if I was to give a statistics answer, like if there's the mean, uh, like how peakable are you, how right. predictable is your body in response to nutrients? I'm probably like two standard deviations below the mean, so um, I'm of the more wacky. Yeah. However, that's definitely changed this this season. Like so, so I have the, the, these pictures that I sent to Berto in 09 of my quads in the morning and my quads at night. And, and I shit you not, I had cross striations in the morning and at night I had hints of separation. Wow. Um, so it literally looked like, uh, two weeks out and 16 weeks out difference in the quads, uh, in the same day. Um, and that, that's another big thing I learned was that I was just crushing myself with hard cardio, um, and also just had a lot of life stress right. and I think I'm, I've handled my life stress better and stress overall I'm less neurotic of a bodybuilder and not doing any cardio and also I don't have leg days per se which we will probably have a whole 20 minutes or so to talk about training but I don't thrash my legs to the point where they get that kind of fluid build up in edema which now I realize what it was like right. <clears throat> we just thought I had to lose fat slower on my quads uh, but like we I think we're just so confused like obviously I'm not gaining fat from eight a m to eight pm but the the variability in my quads the fact that that's where they seem to spill over and they they that's where I retain water and all that uh, it seemed like yeah just getting this guy's quads to show up that 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 that's the gamble um and now it's so funny like my quads can't not look good, you know um and and Berto still can't get over it. Every time I report any, he goes, I just can't get over the fact that I can see every muscle in your quadriceps right now. Um, so anyway, the um, I am definitely more finicky, but I don't appear to be this season. Um, now, I, I'm much more closer to the kind of the normal person. Um, so essentially the lesson was learn what I need to do for me to not make everything terrible. Uh, but that did take three seasons, which I don't think is too far off the standard. Okay. I think we can probably get there a little closer. Like typically if I get two or three shows with someone, I've probably nailed their peak by the second or third show, or at least made it so they look better on, on stage and they do some random time two weeks out. Um, for me it was, you know, my tenth show, third season, but I wasn't coached by by three DMJ in mm-hmm. 7 3MJ formed in 09. And at that time, we had, we'd, we'd coached no one. So, uh, you know, so it, I think uh, the difference is now that our clients benefit from the collective experience of all of us. And we have coached over a 1000 people to the stage now. But so on average, I, I think this is a really useful thing for someone who's going to hire a coach and get on stage. Uh, no matter how good they are, I wouldn't expect your first peak to be as good as your second or third peak just because it's a learning process. Yeah. Even if you run a trial like I did, um, man, the game day is different. You know, the bodybuilding shows are notorious for you getting on 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 stage at some time you didn't expect typically too late. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're going to be typically much more stressed out than you would be on a random day after a refeed where you tested a peak week and you're like, oh, that's great, you know. Uh, you've got color on, you're, you're, you have to do your spray tan, you took a polygraph if you're competing in drug tested shows, um, you know, your your division might change, uh, you get, you know, you show up and you think you're going to be in a specific weight class and they find out they're just going to split you into equal, equal thirds, um, you know, all this stuff, they throw curve balls at, at yeah. neurotic people who are dieted <laughs> and even more neurotic than normal. And you're trying to remember and travel and you're staying in a hotel, in an athlete meeting, all this stuff, uh, just the show itself, I think makes people look worse, you know? So I think experienced competitors have an advantage just because they're less rattled by that stuff. And it took me until probably my third or this fourth season to realize that I don't even think the food you eat on show day makes that much of a difference Mm -hmm. compared to other things. Like if you think about it, like how long does it take glycogen to store? You're damn sure the meal you ate one hour out isn't storing glycogen, you know? The, the sodium might be affecting you, the fluid in 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 that food's affecting you. Um and you know, it, it might be stabilizing your blood glucose so you can pose better on stage, but that's it. Mm-hmm. Like honestly, you could eat a 70% fat meal an hour before stage, it wouldn't make a difference in my opinion if if the sodium and the fluids were right. there and there's enough just to stabilize your blood glucose, which can come from, you know, protein. So the uh, just kind of knowing that and having confidence and i remember agonizing over the grams of carbs i got from rice cakes in on when i got on stage in 2009 and uh you know i think like when do i need to have my sodium coat should it be now or 10 minutes from now should i do it after the pump up or before the pump up and i'm trying to manage so many variables in my head all that didn't matter and now i was like yeah i should probably get in you know i need to get a meal in this morning you know and i need to keep keep my like need to stay hydrated i need to make sure that while I'm eating less than I normally do, that my sodium levels aren't too low. So let me throw back a half teaspoon of salt right before I get on stage and make my first meal salty, you know. And that's it, you know. So understanding that uh, I really like the process of getting someone looking right, um, more right as the days go. Yeah. You know, if you can set up a peak week so that they're looking better as the show approaches and like typically one of the tips of the trade, tricks of the trade for me is if I can get them looking really good, but just slightly spilled over the night before, we're money on game day. And then we just have to maintain that look. And if they look really, really off after that, and you didn't change anything and they didn't, you know, go off plan and there wasn't some crazy time thing and they didn't forget to drink water. It probably just means then you need to work on stress management. That tells you something. Okay, this athlete needs to meditate when they wake up. Uh, they need to kind of separate themselves from the rest of the competitors, put their legs up and listen to some music, listen to some podcasts, and not think about the fact that they're getting on stage. And then their coach needs to just let them know, hey, can take take your headphones out, sweet, eat this, and just walk around the building for a little bit. Are you cold here? Put a sweatshirt on, you know, that kind of thing. Tell them when to start pumping up and just kind of keep their head out of the game until they need to get on stage and they gain the experience so that doesn't become a uh such a stressful process.
0: I love that. Especially the the game day approach in terms of it's just like a try and treat it like any other day almost in some ways I try and tell a lot of my clients in that you you can't if if you've peaked badly, you can't sort it out on kind of, game day is going to be a tricky day to try and do anything like you said. You kind of want to be that ready beforehand. You've kind of that's why it's peak week, not kind of like the peak day in that way. Yeah. So I think that's really valuable well advice and actually with the you saying of went into your training let's dig into mm-hmm. that so what's your split looking like eric yeah so i spent um actually <laughs> legitimately a full year
1: playing with different splits of having the same total number of sets per body part um but distributing them differently to see what i found was a uh allowed me to improve performance which i didn't see huge differences in except on except on a few movements Uh, B, what left me feeling the most recovered or least recovered, what beat me up the most. Uh, C, what was subjectively hardest and easiest, how sore was I, how long did it take to recover and when did my joints feel more or less beat up. Um, And what I landed on, I I, I really liked just an alternating upper upper, lower. So I just do upper lower, upper lower, upper lower and then take off days. Uh, I just had one to two a week that I was allowed myself to take Um, but I found that... Leg days are really trash me, you know, um even in the off season, even when I'm fat and happy, like the the prospect of doing squats leg press r d l leg extensions, and leg curls in the same day uh and maybe sometimes lunges on top of that um to get to the requisite volume uh, that is really hard, and that's why leg days go down is the thing body will just talk about like that's the real training day, like you know like pump your chest. Uh, this is Sparta kind of kind of talk, you know. Um, and when I went to full body, knowing that for me personally, I need more upper body volume than lower because my lower body responds better. Uh, and I need more. It, basically, what it looks like is I was doing uh, five upper body days with one or two lower body movements. And only one of them was a big compound. And all of a sudden, my recovery improved so much. Uh, I was able to handle things. And the only downside I found to doing uh, the full body uh, was that I could get elbow tendinitis if I didn't pay attention to what I did for my direct arm work. So if I did more more neutral grip stuff, if I did BFR, uh, if I spread it out throughout the week intelligently, and if I did more high reps and I wasn't doing like heavy curls or heavy pushdowns or, or uh, like if I stayed away from things like skull crushers and some of the other things that put you at a weird position, then I was fine. And um, so I actually have stuck with for over a year now uh five full body sessions as my training and only had to make very slight modifications for prep uh to 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 kind of deal with the the lethargy and and, and, the, and the fatigue and just the poor recovery um so it's pretty unconventional it's that i've never trained this way um i've trained full body obviously for weightlifting and powerlifting, but full body for bodybuilding i've really only done that um I sort of did it for a while when I was benching, no matter what I went to the gym, but sometimes it'd be like a leg day plus bench, Mm -hmm. you know, but it wasn't truly full body. And this is now I'm actually setting things up for full body and have been for a year. And I really, really like it. Um, And it's not for any of like, you know, nonsense reductionist reasons, like, well, because of the MPS response time period and advanced lifters. And therefore, like, no, I'm not just muscle, right? You know, I have to think about overall recovery and everything, but it's really allowed me to maintain performance. walking into the gym where the only thing keeping me standing was you know the 400 milligrams of caffeine i have because it's a low day and all i've had is you know like uh 40 grams of protein and and 20 grams of carbs and 10 grams of fat and it's been six hours into the day uh and i'm i have strided glutes like the prospect of going right all i have today is three sets of leg press for lower body okay i can do that and then i can get on bench like and then i like bench you know like right um so that that's a much different prospect, you know. Like, I, I think this probably wouldn't be the approach someone would need to take if they had to do a lot of volume for a lower body. But for me, I have uh, three sets of of uh, three squat patterns, uh, three sets of of leg of leg extensions, and then for the other side, I've got three sets of leg curls, uh, a glute specific movement for three sets, um, and then. A uh, hip hinge movement for three sets, and then another either glute or hamstring hamstring thing for three sets, and then nine sets of calves to do per week. So splitting that up over five days, man, each day is is just so much easier to handle. So that's been my training, um, and then I'm doing you know two pushing and two pulling movements, and then some other accessory movement, whether it's a lateral raise, a face pull, or direct arm work uh, every day. Um, and it's been so much easier to maintain performance. I have. Since the start officially of prep, I have actually lost zero strength, which is pretty Amazing. crazy to me. Yeah. I started at 88, 89. So, I mean, to be clear, when I was at my peak off-season weight of 100 kilos, I benched 165 for touch and go. Right now, I can bench 140 for touch and go. So, that is that is a loss of strength, but relative strength is, is uh, hasn't gone down at all. And and the drop from 89 to 81, I've lost no strength, which is pretty shocking to me. Um, so, it's, it's, it's clearly working, at least for me and that is works for me
0: bro is the answer. Me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> your anecdote is fine we're doing a- yeah. a- AO even <laughs> A-O. i've wanted to do that <laughs> so with the full actually just to clarify full body you are literally training like chest back hamstrings and quads each and every single session
1: so there, there are some days where a muscle group might not get hit so for example um i think i hit quads on four days because I have three squat patterns. Let's see, I've got a leg press, I have a safety bar squat, I have a plate-loaded power squat and a leg extension I do on all different days. So there's one day where I only hit um, hamstrings and calves, but the other four days I hit quads and then likewise, there's one day where I, I don't do any direct work for hamstrings so They get maybe slightly touched by a squat pattern. Cool. So yeah, there's a few days where something doesn't get hit. Like I don't have direct bicep or tricep work every day. Um, I don't have direct rear delt every work every day, but I'm doing a a row or a pull down and some type of chest press or or fly or dip or or a a pullover something that hits the chest every day. Um, And yeah, I'm extending my elbow and flexing my 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 elbow every day in some way or another. So, yeah.
0: And so you're almost everything gets in every day. And you're undulating, obviously, exercise selection is changing. I don't know just so people don't think you're kind of doing squats every school time. you do, Obviously, you talked about the different leg movements that you're doing. Same for upper body, I guess. And then I guess repetition ranges are changing a little bit as well. Yeah, so to give you kind of the overall structure of the micro and mesos, I'm running um, three weeks
1: of pushing, either trying to push load, uh, push reps, or push towards a higher RPE on a set-by-set basis for each movement in the rep range that I selected for that mesocycle. I do that for three weeks and then I take a deload. On the deload, which is my fourth week, I, uh, depending on how beat up I feel, I will not necessarily do this uh, if I don't think it's safe. But what I have been doing is doing one set uh, – sorry, two sets on each movement after warming up uh, to do a low rep attempt for a new PR and then a high rep kind of burnout new, new AMRAP PR for fun. Uh, I will take those two somewhere between a nine to 10 RPE. So it's not technically an AMRAP. I might be able to get one more for, for kind of safety. Um, but it drops my volume in in slightly more than a third because I'm not doing like a hundred reps on the AMRAP mm-hmm. and the low reps are like three to five RMs. So, I'm motivated to go in there. I get excited for the session. It's not those deloads where you go in and you're like, man, I actually feel weak on this deload. Maybe I needed it. No, it's because you can't get amped up for a set of five at 75% of one RAM. Like, you're already unhappy about this whole (laughs) week. Um, So, for me, I find uh, I I really like doing that. I don't think that works with some setups. Like, you don't want to do three weeks of overreaching, then let's go for a PR. You know, like, that doesn't make sense in some ways. But the way my training is set up um, and which movements I selected on it, it works just fine mm-hmm. uh, but your mileage may vary kind of thing. So anyway, um, so I have a a, a three week um, basically acclimating to, to to higher stress loads, one week deload and then I make uh, I do a, b- a block assessment on what I liked, what I didn't like, what I want to change, uh, what movements are becoming too subjectively stressful. So right. for example, I was actually doing, safety bar squats and front squats uh, for a while and I replaced the front squats with the uh, plate loaded power squat uh, just because, man, keeping my, my back up and tight and, and focused and doing all the things you need to do to do multiple reps in the bodybuilding rep range for, for front squats was just mentally fatiguing um, as, as an example. I also replaced – I was benching a couple times per week and I replaced one of them with like a plate loaded uh, converging uh, press, so like a machine press um, which was easier to do. So, it came down to like mental focus. And there was one day where I noticed my elbow tendinitis was, was like, it, it cyclically goes and then it goes away by then the time I have to do the movements again, but it wasn't. And I think it's just because I wasn't recovering well. And on that day, I was doing uh, weighted dips and tricep pushdowns. So, I just pulled the, the tricep pushdowns. And I'm like, you know, I have plenty of pressing. So, small modifications like that. So, I would say overall, my volume is dropped from December by maybe 10 to 15%, but not by much, Mm -hmm. Um, by kind of little tweaks like that. Um, And most of the the changes have been exercise selection to feel a little more manageable. Um, As far as what I select for rep range and uh, an RPE, it is normally what I think is appropriate for the movement. So, certain movements really don't lend themselves to high reps or low reps. So, like for example, isolation movements are higher reps because mm-hmm. of either joint strain or inability to keep form or attention on the target muscle. Uh, and then high risk, lower body, free weight compound movements, I might do more sets to offset the fact that I'm training outside of what is probably right. the effect of range. brain. So, I'll rather, I'd rather do 5 by 5 at a 6 to 8 RPE than say uh, 3 by 8 at 8 to 10 RPE. Uh, even though the load would be roughly the same, and I think the stimulus would, would as well um, because I find that subjectively easier. Mm-hmm. Um, you can keep better better technical control of the form, et cetera. Yeah, you got to rest. It takes a little longer, but I think it's worth a trade-off. Um, and uh, so the undulations in reps, uh, it's not that they're the, the day each day has its own rep focus. It's more like the movements have their own rep focus and the RPE combination, and they're on different days. Uh, and then... Depending on whether I think I can progress load week to week to week on an exercise or whether I just don't have that kind of capacity for performance improvement, then I might. uh, The second step would be, all right, can I increase reps on this movement? And if I don't think I do, then the third option for progression that I will do is I'll drop reps and increase load very slightly. So for example, um, bench press I find to be one of the hardest things to actually progress during prep. And like I said, I haven't lost any strength on bench, but I haven't progressed it at all. Right. So I'm doing all kinds of different rep combinations just to to see, like, can I maintain the what I did before? Can I do that again? Can I, okay, can I go close to failure, but still get that? All right, you know, so I'm kind of like holding a line on bench press because my butt's getting smaller and smaller and it's more like a flat press every day and less of a powerlifting arch. Um, but other movements I've been able to slowly progress. Like, for example, my dumbbell chest press. I've been working on getting... 3 sets of 15 with uh i th- i think 45 kilos on on dumbbell flat press and i finally got that after doing like 15 13 12 14 14 14 15 15 14 goddamn all right next week 15 15 15 so little things like that are i've been mean, how i've been progressing and um and then i uh, i'll make changes to the exercise selection uh, based on how long i've been doing a movement how good it's feeling, uh, simple desire to do something different. Um, and then I will use some time saving techniques and also volume saving techniques on certain isolation movements. Like I'll do rest pause or drop sets on some arm work uh, and some direct delt work, direct calf work, um, because I just get really mentally tired at the end of a session. And for me, doing three straight sets of preacher curls uh, when when I'm just fatigued after a full body session, it might be easier for me to do three drop sets and Mm -hmm. be like, look, it's going to be hard. I'm going to go to failure and it's going to be, you know, kind of grindy, but I'll be done in three minutes, you know? So I think that that's or less. So some of those are all based around um, maintaining the subjective ease of the training while still getting the same total stimulus objectively.
0: Nice. Really interesting. I think people are going to really appreciate hearing that and, Interesting to hear the yeah full body split is working really productively, but I think why not? You've tried many things and that's a great thing about experimenting. So really, really interesting. And then in terms of kind of future, what's up next for you, Eric? Like how many weeks out are you from particular shows? This might come out and you might be even nearer to it, but uh, when are the next shows and what's kind of, what are you hoping for? Right. So on as of, uh, I think it's Thursday, May 9th
1: in, in the United States right now as we're recording this. Um, so I am uh, just about two months out from my next show, which is July 6th in uh, Sacramento, California. That is the River City Classic INBF show um which is which is a, another another newer show that's been around i think a couple of years but it's growing it's got a great promoter INBF does a great job with it um Bob and Tina are out in California so they make sure all their their affiliates and shows do really really good so i'm excited to do that one on the 6th and then the big show the pro am the muscle mayhem on July 20th that has been the man for jeez for two decades now that the probably the biggest and best natural show in California uh, I'll be doing that one. And that's the first time I've been on that stage since 2009. And the last time I did that, I I, uh, I won the heavies. Jeff Alberts won the lights. And then we uh, we both got mopped up by Moji Alua in in the overall. <laughs> um, to be clear, though, Jeff placed behind Moji by one point uh, while I was, a, I think, a distant third or fourth in the overall. But um, so that was cool. Last time I competed on stage with Jeff uh was was 2009 at at the show and we're going to be doing that again um if i'm able to get my pro status the 2 weeks before on July 6th if there's enough people in the show to to award a pro card and and if i actually win the overall i'll be getting literally on the pro stage with him probably mm-hmm. standing next to that guy for a few minutes before they decide to kick me to the outside <laughs> um <laughs> and if not then at the very least we'll be in the same show i'll be in the amateur division he'll be in the pros uh, and that'll be a lot of fun and it'll, that'll be for the 10 year anniversary of 3DMJ. So amazing that, that, those are the big plans. Yeah. So we got a big 3 DMJ get together all planned out in, uh, in, in
0: Sacramento, uh, to kind of celebrate the fact that we've been doing this thing since late 09. That's amazing. And you definitely should celebrate because you guys have done, I mean, you transformed the bodybuilding industry and everything that we're doing. So I think, yeah, to see that happen is yeah going to be a really exciting day. That's that's
1: very kind of you, man. And, and we're, we're very grateful to have been able to have a positive impact. And we're going to keep trying to. So uh, we're going to celebrate thinking of all the amazing people we've met and everyone else who's doing great work like yourself with Revive Stronger. So thank you
0: so we'll wrap up there after we've it's a nice little ending i think if people have further questions maybe they can submit them somehow into the comments and maybe we we'll have to drag you back on at some point eric i think probably we've made people think quite deeply about contest prep and the different things that go on so um, i think that might be quite cool but um, obviously people want to learn more from 3dmj hopefully by now they know where to head but i don't know if you've got anything new coming out over that like any new projects or anything yeah, we
1: just launched, um, for those who are fans of my books, The Muscle and Strength Pyramids, um, there's a really cool app that I, I partnered with, uh, Gravitas. It's available on uh, iPhone, so Android users be patient. But for those who have an iPhone, if you are in your early stages of your bodybuilding journey, uh, you can actually run in-app guided uh, with progression-based, uh, like done-for-you customized exercise selection, um, plateau fixes, analytics, everything just done right in front of you with videos of the 3dMJ coaches performing the lifts, uh, tips and guidance from me in written form. You can run the novice bodybuilding program from the second edition of my books on Gravitas. So you can, uh, download the Gravitas app, purchase it in, in the app, or you can purchase it on the website and you can uh, find a link to that in my Instagram at Helms 3dMJ. That's the newest kind of cool thing that I'm doing these days. um, but yeah, besides that, just like you said, go to
0: 3dmusclejourney.com. Check out all our stuff. That is really, really interesting though. I That's so cool that you're in an app now and people can actually do the muscle and strength pyramids via that. So um, yeah, I think that's it's for people who are at that stage, I mean, I wish I had something like that to access. It's like a gold mine. So we'll make sure that's linked below. People can access that and uh, definitely follow Eric over on Instagram as well to keep an eye on all these shows and everything that's happening there. So thank you again, Eric for coming on and thank you guys for listening. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.